May we truly always seek the lost. Please be seated. We come now to the reading and preaching of God's word. So I invite you, if you have your Bibles with you, to turn to Esther chapter 1. We take a look at verses 10 through 12. And before we hear God's word read and God speak to us through his preached word, I invite you to join me in prayer, asking God's blessing upon that which he has for us this morning. Please join me. Lord God, we do come before you this morning, thanking you and praising you that you build us up in a mighty way through your preached word. So we ask you might do that this morning. Lord, help us to see how Jesus calms anger. Help us, Lord, to trust in your promises. Be with me, your servant, Lord. Let the words I speak be not my own, but the words you placed in my mouth to convince and convict, to build up in holiness and comfort, to turn hearts to yourself. And Lord, be with each one here as they hear you speak to them, Lord. Use these words to meet their needs. For we ask these things in the matchless and mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we come to Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, a text that shows how Jesus is our answer for anger. So hear now God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Esther 1, beginning at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Derek's 19 years old and facing life in prison. Evidently, some other young man disrespected him, refused to do what he said, so Derek shot him dead. He let his anger get the best of him, all because someone disrespected him. He threw his caution to the wind, and in the process, anger took over, and he threw his life away. Can you relate to that? You ever let anger get the best of you? Maybe you don't shoot someone dead, but you find yourself fuming mad, angry about something or someone, and what do you do? What happens? See, this is such a common problem in the world and church today. People getting angry. Men and women getting angry. And in their anger, killing their marriages, destroying their children, and tearing churches apart. It is so pervasive, you can finally hardly find a person, a church, or a home where anger isn't encountered almost daily. And that tells you, if you're here this morning, facing some angry foe, or battling anger yourself, you're not alone. And that's why you want to pay attention. Because through this text of scripture, through this message, you're going to see how Jesus Christ provides the help and the hope you need. Because you're going to see through this text how King Ahasuerus, like Derek, lets his anger get the best of him. And he makes foolish commands. All because he's disrespected. So he flies into this rage. So I want you to do something with me. I invite you to take a walk back with me in an ancient Susa as we conclude this wedding feast. And here's what I want you to see this morning. First, merriment can make you foolish. Second, foolishness makes unwise demands. And third, unwise demands bring anger. And this brings us to the point of the text 
which is the point of the message. Get this down. Let this be why whenever you're facing some angry foe or you feel anger welling up inside you, you look to Jesus. Here's your big idea. Jesus calms anger, so follow him. So first, merriment can make you foolish. You ever just want to have a good time? Blow off some steam? Feel like you need a rest? Maybe in working extra hard, studying extra hard, you say, I need a break. There's nothing wrong with that. God gives us times of refreshment, times to take a break, good things to enjoy, which means it's okay to get some rest, to go to a party, maybe even sit that night and have a drink of bourbon. That's okay to do. You see this is fine, because what do you see? God gives us rest because he gave Jesus rest. Jesus went off by himself to get away, to get time by himself. And no offense to our Baptist brethren, but God says you can enjoy a good drink every now and again. And how do you see that in Scripture? You see it in Psalm 104.15. God, speaking about his provision, says this. He gives us wine to gladden the heart of man. And in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but drink some wine for your ailments and your stomach. So this shows us it's okay to get some rest, to have a good time, go to a party, and maybe even have a beer at night. But we need to be very careful about how much fun you have and how much you drink. Because God says it's not sinful to have alcohol, but you know what? He does say there's a danger with too much. Shows how merriment can make you foolish. And you see it in his word, because what does he tell us? Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup of wrath. Foaming wine mixed well. Know what that's telling you? God's wrath is associated with wine. And what's he tell you in Ephesians 5.18? Do not get drunk with wine. This is showing you how wine is both good and bad. Most of the things God gives us in life, the good gifts he gives us, could be used positively or negatively. So that's why we need to be sober-minded. Think well about what we do, how much fun you're having. Because here's the reality. Getting drunk, having too much fun, let that be a priority is going to lead you straight into trouble. And often, you find how merriment makes you foolish. That's what you're seeing right here in our text. What do you have right here going on? You're at the end of King Ahasuerus' week-long wedding feast to Queen Vashti. And how do you know that? Look how our text begins. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, this is showing a picture, making clear how merriment can make you foolish. What's going on with King Hashuerus here? He's at his wedding feast, and he's been drinking a lot. If you understand the history, look at the first nine verses. You see he had this huge bash for all his military, all his leaders, all his nobles. Why? Because he wants to have this war against Greece. He's got 127 provinces, but it's not enough. He wants to expand his kingdom. He needs them to support him in his war. So he throws this huge bash, and what do they do? They drink. The wine is flowing. No end to it. And the minute that's done, he moves into this wedding feast. A week-long event. Look what it says in your text again. It says, on the seventh day. That's referring to the end of this one-week-long wedding feast. Now, how do you know it's a wedding? Because in ancient Susa, they didn't celebrate for one night. Weddings were celebrated for a whole week long. And where did they take place at? just where this is taking place, in the garden of the palace. That's why when you look at the experts, they all agree that this is most likely 
King Ahasuerus' wedding feast to Queen Vashti. So you got the king holding this six-month-long feast where the, basically they got the finest of everything, all the food, all the decorations, all to get the noble support to invade Greece. And after this, he moves right into the wedding where he gets all the people of Susa to come out, invites them to his wedding to show them how much he cares about them because what does he need? He needs their support as well. He needs them to say, you can have my son, you can have my husband. We will fight for you because you must love us so much. Why else would you invite us to your wedding, right? Don't you feel special when someone invites you to a wedding? Feel a little upset when they don't? How did I not make the cut? That's what he's doing here, inviting them to do what? So they can celebrate and see how much he cares about them. So he can sway them to support his war cause. At the end of the week, this king's drunk. That's what's in view here. Look what the language says in your text. Look what it says here. When the king's heart was merry with wine. This guy's hammered. That's what's going on here. And think about this. When you're drunk, you don't usually make the best decisions, do you? That's why so many young people wind up the next day with tattoos and a nighttime of regrets. Because of that foolishness and drunkenness take over. And that's what you're seeing right here. And that's why God forbids drunkenness. And that's why he says, be careful about where you find your merriment and your joy. Which way you go. Find it in Christ. Because he knows merriment can make you foolish. Just like you see with King Ahasuerus' command that he makes. Look at verse 10. Look what it goes on to say here. He commanded Mahuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. This is driving home, making clear how merriment can make you foolish. And it's not just wine that you can get drunk on. You can get drunk with power. You can get drunk with pride. You can get drunk with your own desires, what you want done. That's what you're seeing right here. This very wealthy king that's got seven eunuchs attending to him. And I want you to think about this. Seven names. Who are they? Other than the book of Esther, they're not named anywhere else in history. You know what that is? This is showing you how God uses ordinary people, each and every one of you, to bring about his kingdom purposes. These seven eunuchs are going to deliver us a command to Queen Vashti. She's going to refuse, and guess what's going to happen? It's going to set the stage for Queen Esther rising to power. God's providential hand through ordinary means, ordinary people. That's why I like to say, don't always seek the extraordinary, but understand God uses the ordinary. Throughout the book of Esther, you see names that are listed, and they're nothing in the world's eyes but they mean something to God. And that's what I want you to hear this morning about yourself. You matter to God. You're the ordinary means he uses. He uses you to bring about his kingdom purposes. And he empowers you to do just that. That's why he wants you to be sober-minded. That's why he wants you to have the right mindset. Because he knows he's going to use you to bring about his purposes. And that ought to put a smile on your face. Because he chooses you He says, come to me, and I'm going to use you and make you successful. Don't worry about what the world says, because you matter to me. My kingdom purpose are being fulfilled through you. That's the idea. When you look at these names, you can read right past them, not give them a second thought. But you could just easily replace them with Sally and Glory and Dan. Your names, the people he uses. Look, I don't want to upset you here, but I've got to shock you. You're not superstars. Nobody's building buildings and saying, I want to put your name on the side of it. 
No well-known authors coming and saying, you know what? I got to write your biography. It's going to be a bestseller. Why? Because you're ordinary people. But that's okay. Be satisfied with that because God uses the ordinary to bring about the extraordinary. And how do you see that? Because he fulfills his kingdom purposes through you. And that's why Jesus calms anger because he wants to use you. Think about what's going on here. How does Jesus calm anger? Your God is angry at your sin. Do you realize that? Every sin you commit means you're subject to God's wrath and the eternity in hell. But what does Jesus do? He calms that anger. He serves as a propitiation for God's wrath, appeases God's anger, calms him down by shedding his blood for you. That's how much he loves you. That's what he does for you. Takes your place on the cross, does for you what you could never do for yourself, and then rises from the grave to conquer sin and death and ascends on high to send the Spirit to indwell you. So he can use you as the ordinary means to bring about his kingdom purposes. That's how God brings his, his plans to fruition, through you. Do you realize that about yourself? The world may say, you don't matter. We don't put your name on the side of a building. But guess what? You matter greatly. And that's why Jesus calms anger. Because when you're angry, you don't think straight. You're thinking about yourself, what you want, what you think you should have, not what Jesus wants and what Jesus does through you. Here's the reality. Jesus calms anger so you can focus on God's will being done, not your will being done. Ask yourself, when you really want something and you don't get it, does it make you angry? Get a little upset? Do you have the same anger towards God's will being done? Somebody speaks bad about your Lord and Savior, you're saying, don't you say that. Well, you're kind of like, eh, I'll pray for you. What do you do when someone cuts you off on the road? How dare you go where I'm going and get there before me? You have no right. That's what happens, right? Jesus calms anger because he wants to use you as the ordinary means to bring about his purposes, just like you're seeing here. That's why he wants you to live soberly, clear-headed, sober-minded. And that's why you hear through this text how merriment can make you foolish. It can make you unwise and angry. And that's why you need Jesus Christ. Because Jesus calms anger, so follow him. And you need to be calm. You know why? You're going to face all sorts of insulting demands. Which brings us to our second point. Foolishness makes unwise demands. If you were king of the world, what would it look like? What would you require people do? You're king, so what do you say your loyal subjects must do? Would it be being worship every Lord's Day? Read your Bibles every day? Be in prayer every hour? Or would it be more things like, make sure you vacuum the floor, do the dishes, and make sure your bed is made? If you want to know what you would do, ask yourself, what's important in your life? What do you do in your homes with your kids? What's primary? What's your focus on? This is where you kind of see what really matters. Because you know what I see? Most parents are more focused on their kids being polite, saying please and thank you, and getting to bed on time, than reading their Bible and being in prayer. Think about that. You know what we do? We tell our kids, you got to be in bed on time, and then we walk into worship 10 minutes late. Isn't that foolish to think that we do that? We make these unreasonable demands, these unwise demands that have nothing to do with God's word, have to do with our comfort, our ease. That's the reality. When you consider these actions in light of how we profess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our number one, the guy who's our priority, how foolish is it to demand these sorts of things that are designed to do what you think is best? You need to think about what God says is best, what he requires. 
Foolishness makes unwise demands, just like you see in our text. Look at verse 11. Look what you read here. It shows King Ahasuerus' demand. It says he commands them to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. At first blush, this doesn't seem too unreasonable, does it? Kind of makes sense, particularly when you understand the context of what's going on. Where's King Ahasuerus celebrating at? He's in the palace gardens. And where's Queen Vashti celebrating at? She's in the palace. Why? Because when men and women and ancient soothsayers get together for a party, if there's alcohol, they don't celebrate together. Even the pagans know the danger of alcohol and mixing sexes in that situation. So they separate them out. So you say to yourself, he wants Queen Vashti to be thought, brought to him. You know what? It's been a week-long celebration. Maybe he just misses her. Maybe he wants to make sure she's okay. He wants to give her a kiss, make sure everything's going her way. You've read the text, you know that's not the case. But isn't that what we do with our unreasonable demands? Try to justify and make them look good like there's some righteous reason behind them? Think about it. Think about how we try to justify what we require and put it in the best possible light. What do we do with our kids? You've got to eat your vegetables and go to bed on time, early. You need proper nutrition and proper sleep so you can be healthy. And then what do we do? Put them to bed, stay up late, watching all kinds of nonsense on TV, eating cake and ice cream. So much for the health and concern, right? But that's what we do. And you see the same thing within the church context. I mean, think about it. We're God's people, chosen by him, adopted as sons and daughters, brought into union with him. He does for you what you can never do for yourself. Makes you new. Takes out your heart of stone. Gives you a heart of flesh. Makes a real difference for you. Transforms you. And what do you do? What do you demand that the church do for you? You know what? That pastor better answer the phone when I call at 2 in the morning or I'm out of here. How dare he think he gets sleep when I need him? What do we do? You better have hand sanitizer visibly present everywhere or ain't coming. And if you have some church event or some church worship service, the kids better sit still, not make noise, and not run. Those are the demands we make. What does God say? He wants your kids in worship. He wants you to be focused on him, not on these foolish demands. That's what we do, though. Think about it. Why do we make these demands? Because that's what we think is important. But God shows you in his word what's truly important. And when you think about what we demand, ask yourself, is it supported by Scripture? Now, don't hear me saying you can't have desires or make demands. You need to share your opinions. You need to say what you think is right. Have those discussions. But be very careful when you start demanding your way, seeking your preferences. But rather, stop and ask, does it support it by God's word? The scriptures support what I say. Because when you find out you're not getting your way, you get angry. Church is split. You know why? Not usually because of bad preaching. Usually because someone had the audacity to change the color of the nursery. Or had the wrong toys in the nursery. Imagine that. And they leave. Christ calls you to himself. Dies for you. Does what you can never do for yourself. And yet we make these foolish demands. That's why Christ calms anger. Jesus calms anger so we can look to Scripture and see what it says and what ought to be done. Because here's the reality. When you demand your way, insist on your preferences, it's a recipe for disaster because it's a recipe for anger. And it shows how foolish makes, foolishness makes unwise demands. Just like you see in our text. Look at verse 11, how it ends. Look what it says here. This is showing you why he's asking for his queen to be brought before him in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. 
This is the reason for King Ahasuerus' command, his unwise demand, that Queen Vashti be carried in by the seven eunuchs on her royal throne wearing her royal crown. It's all about his pride and power. He wants the people to see how powerful he is, how important he is, and he surrounds himself with nothing but the best, only the finest for him. That's why the decorations are all marble and incredible wealth. That's why he has all the wine flowing, the greatest feast. And now he's saying, bring in my bride. And notice what happens here. Seven eunuchs. That's not by accident. The number seven in scripture usually means completeness or perfection. He's trying to show how his power is complete. He's the perfect king. He's the guy you ought to go to war with. If he says to do something, you ought to follow it because he's perfectly powerful. I've only got the most lavish and lovely things. That's what he's saying. That's what he's showing. That's the message he's sending. So what does he say? Bring in the queen. Use her as a show pony, a trophy wife. Look how beautiful my wife is. Huh? Check her out. See how much I matter? You'd think I could get a wife like this if I wasn't so great? That's the message he's saying. He wants to pray her around the people so they might think well of the king. He wants to inspire a sense of patriotism, loyalty, have them support him in his desire to go to war against Greece. And, you know, we can look at this, and we can think how sad this is. But you know what? Sadly, there's men today who do the same thing. They use their wives and their children for their ease and their comfort. Try to parade them, make them look like they're righteous and good. Look how my wife is. Look how my kids sit still in church. See what a good husband and father I am? Because if your kids don't sit still, you clearly must not be a good father, right? No, that's not true, but we try to do that. Try to make that's the goal, that's the purpose, that's the focus. You know what you need in the church? Kids running around, because that's the life of the church. That's who builds the church. That's who helps the church to grow. So hear me loud and clear, men. Hear this. Your wife, your kids are not your property. You don't own them. They're God's good gift to you for your benefit and your good. You see this in Proverbs 19:14. It says this. Listen to these words. Houses and money are from a father, but a wife is from the Lord. And Proverbs 18:22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And as to your children, Psalm 127:3 says, Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Malachi 2.15 says God joins men and women in marriage. Yes, men and women, not two men or two women, but men and women together in marriage. For what reason? Because he desires godly offspring. That's why God makes it clear. Your wife, your children are not your property. They're God's gift to you to shepherd, to lead, to love, to point to Jesus. And you see this so clearly when you go on through Scripture. Ephesians 5, 25 to 32 that we read earlier in the text, right? Husband, love your wives and present them as holy and blameless. Ask yourself, what does that require to present your wife as holy and blameless? It's not spending time out at the supermarket. It's spending time in God's word, spending time in worship, sitting with her, talking with her, knowing what her needs are, knowing what her struggles are, knowing how you can serve her. And how about your children? What are you told to do? Not to provoke them to anger, but to raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you do that? By flipping out on them, clean your room, pick these toys up? No, by sharing God's word, showing God's grace, showing Christ's love. Now I'm saying don't discipline your kids. You've got to discipline your kids. God says that. 
But do it in a context that's not angry. That's why Jesus calms anger. Because listen, if you're married, you have kids, you know this. Your wife, your kids, they can make you mad. Right? That can happen. It's not just my wife and kids, is it? It happens, right? And what does God do? Jesus calms anger because he knows if we're going to serve effectively, then we need to be calm. Not losing our minds. Not being like Derek and saying, you disrespected me. But rather willing to serve them as those that God's given to us for our good. And what do you do? Don't make foolish demands that are designed to make your life easier, better, less costly. Have your every need met. That's not why God gave you a wife and kids. He gave them to you for you to lead and shepherd. So do that. And know that Jesus calms anger so you can do that. You can point into God's decrees, God's word, and God's ways. Doing anything else is just plain foolish. Don't make foolish demands. That's what foolishness does. Foolishness makes unwise demands, which just provokes people to anger. Now, I need to pause here for a minute. Because if you're familiar with the book of Esther, then you've heard this argument at some point, I'm sure. That when King Ahasuerus said, bring the queen before me with just her crown, he was saying, bring her naked. You ever hear that? It's a total falsity. You know where it flows from? Rabbinical teachings. Because they're using what's known as an exemplary approach to try and force an agenda. They want this text to be about female modesty and submission and condemning drinking. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about what happens when you get angry, the foolishness that flows from it. This text is not about female submission as not anti-alcohol. The passage is showing the dangers of letting your anger get the best of you, of making foolish demands that make others and yourself angry. That's why you need Jesus, because Jesus calms anger. Understand this. No matter what authority you have, it's all derivative. What do I mean by that? It flows from God. He's the one who gives you that power and that authority. And you need to lead that way. You're given to people by God for their good. So if you're a pastor and a church leader, don't rule as a tyrant. Don't make unreasonable demands, but shepherd as God calls you to do. If you're a husband or a parent, shepherd the way God calls you to do. No matter what authority you have, if you're a boss at work, if you're the babysitter and it's finally your time to be in charge, don't take it out on those like you're some big cheese. But serve with humility. Understand what Christ does for you. He does for you what you could never do for yourself and quite frankly, what you would never do for those he calls you to lead. Because what does he do? He lays down his glory. He lays down his authority. He lays down who he is and takes humanity to himself becomes what he wasn't for you. So you can go to the cross as your perfect atoning sacrifice, willingly enters in to his estate of humiliation, born of a virgin, and then goes to the cross in obedience to his father, showing what submission looks like, not seeking his will, his desires, but seeking his father's will and your good. That's how you lead. That's the reality. He leads by showing you what true leadership looks like. It's being a servant first. Hear this, get this down. You don't begin as a leader. Begin as a servant. You serve before you can ever lead. That's the reality. And that's why Jesus calms anger. Because we like to be in charge, have people do what we say. And when they don't, we get mad. So Jesus calms anger. So you can have right perspective, right way of thinking, and see that you're to be a servant first. What does God say husbands are to do? To serve their wives, not command their wives. What does he say to do with your children? 
to raise them in discipline structure Lord, to serve them, not just demand from them. That's the reality. That's what you do. Because he understands foolishness makes unwise demands. And that just makes you and everyone else angry. So Jesus calms anger, so follow him. Because unreasonable demands, they just lead to anger for you and others. Which brings us to our third and final point. Unwise demands bring anger. I want you to think about some unwise, unreasonable, ungodly demand that was stressed upon you at some point in your life. Maybe it was a parent, a father or mother. Maybe a teacher in school. Maybe a boss at work. Maybe somebody who was over, over you for some reason. When they made this unreasonable demand, this unwise demand, this ungodly demand, did it make you want to follow them? Did it make you want to do what they say? Or did you just find yourself wanting to resist, to go the different way? Kind of getting angry, right? Who do you think you are? You're not my boss. That's the idea, right? Because as our text shows, unwise demands have the tendency to make us upset. Because people are trying to force on us what they want us to do. And you see that right here, how unwise demands bring anger. Look at King Ahasuerus' demand to Queen Vashti. She come and parade in front of all his soldiers, all his guests, so they can see how beautiful she is, his little show pony that he can use for his amusement. As you can imagine, when she gets that word, she's not too happy. Would you be too happy with that? So I want to show you off to show how powerful. What does she do? She says no. Look at verse 12. Look how it begins. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. This drives home how unwise commands bring anger. It seems the queen is not too pleased with this command she's just received from these seven eunuchs. That she's going to be used as a piece of property for the king's amusement to support his power and his position. To get others to do what he wants them to do. And understand something. Her saying no is pretty serious. In this day, you say no to the king, you don't just get sent to your room for an hour. You don't get no dessert for dinner. You get your head lopped off. Her saying no is pretty serious. And I want you to understand how this connects with you. Because you're going to face unwise demands in your Christian life and walk. People demanding you do things that are contrary to God's word. And they're going to have real consequences if you say no. But what do you need to do? When your boss demands that you work on the Lord's Day instead of worship, you need to say no. I need to worship my God. When your neighbor says, stop sharing the gospel, I'm sick of hearing about it. You say no. I love you too much. I care too much about you to let you perish and spend eternity in hell. I want you to be transformed. You need to hear the gospel. When your neighbor does this, don't cave. When your governor says it's not safe to meet, you can't gather together your church family, tell him or her no. God says we got his protection. He calls us to worship and to be with him. There may be real consequences for doing so, but Christ empowers you to do so. And that's why Jesus calms anger, because he knows what you face. And he knows what you were facing. God's wrath and anger. You realize every sin you commit deserves God's wrath, eternity in hell? We tend to think big versus little. I never killed anybody. But what do we do? Don't we murder daily in our anger, with our angry words, with our thoughts? 
What is Jesus saying? That's murder. He takes it seriously, and that condemns you. But with Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. That's why you come to him, because Jesus calms anger. He says yes to his heavenly Father. When he says, I want you to be born of a virgin, take humanity to yourself, and walk in perfect obedience to the law to do for these lousy sinners what they don't want to do for themselves. And what does Jesus say? Yes. He does that so you can say no to all unrighteousness. So you can say no to unwise demands or ungodly demands. Anytime someone tells you to do something that's contrary to God's word, you say no. Knowing that Jesus Christ equips and empowers and enables you through his spirit to follow him. That's why he dies, so you might live. And he gives you his spirit, so you have all you need to not give in to unwise demands. So hear this, get this down. Don't get angry, don't flip out, don't lose your mind. Just say no and trust God with the consequences. Trust that God's promises are really true, that he really will protect you. You lose your job, can God give you another one? What does God have? All the cattle on a thousand hills. Your boss can only hire you because God gave him the ability to do so. It all belongs to him. Know this. Ungodly demands force you to go against Christ. That's why you need to say no. And don't fear the wrath you may face because you know Jesus calms anger. And that's what you're seeing right here. That's why you want to follow him in his word. Follow his ways. Do what he says. Because unwise demands bring anger. Not just for the one receiving it, but also the one demanding it, which you see so clearly in how our text ends. Look at verse 12. Look at how it ends our text. Look at these words. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This highlights how unwise demands bring anger, and not just to the one who's being commanded, but also the one making the unwise demand. Notice what's happening here. Queen Vashti says, No, I will not be paraded around as your trophy wife, as some show pony to be used for your amusement. I'm not going to let you show how powerful you are through me. Think about what's going on. He's trying to make his case before his nobles, all his military, why they should follow him into war. I'm powerful. I'm mighty. Look what people follow me. Wait, your wife said no? Wait, what? My wife said no. Imagine you're one of his generals, one of his military, one of the people being asked to go to war for him, and you hear his wife said no. Kind of hurts your pride, doesn't it? Who does she think she is? She knows who I am. I'm the king. But she says no. That undermines his authority disrespects him, as it were, wounds his pride. And that's why he's so mad. Look at your text again. He became enraged and anger burned within him. He's losing face in the midst of his war council, losing their confidence. He can't even get his wife, who's only been married to him for one week, to do what he says. And that's because he makes these unwise demands. And understand something here. Lots of times, people want to use this again, following that rabbinical tradition, as an exemplar approach to say, this shows wives need to do whatever their husbands say. You've got to obey them at all costs. That is not what this text is saying. Men, hear this again. If you give your wife some ungodly, unwise command, I hope you've shepherded her enough that she stands up and says, no. Like when you say, we're not going to church, she says, no, I'm going to worship. Don't think you're honoring God by disobeying his law or his word. Because your husband is not your king. 
Husbands, you're not the kings. Jesus Christ is king. He's the one who gives you power and authority. You serve under him. All power and authority is derivative. Whenever you foolishly demand someone do something contrary to scripture, understand it's going to make you angry. Because if people are walking with Christ and they hear it, they're going to say no. And we don't like hearing no, do we? Who of us likes to hear no? What's the first word your kids learn? No. And what's the first time they get a spanking? No. What? You, what? No. What? That's, you know, not, I'm not hearing that. We've got to be calm, right? Jesus calms our anger. And here's the problem. You're going to face people in the world who think that they're king, think they have all the power, and it's going to cause you to face this real fear and trepidation. What if I don't go their way? What's going to happen? Understand, Jesus calms anger, so you can always go his way. And understand this. Be very careful with your anger. Anger has consequences. They're long, sometimes undoable. Derek took a life, can't undo it. And you know what? We can do the same thing. Your anger has lasting consequences. There's things you can do that can cause hurts that can't be undone. Words you can speak that you can't put back in your mouth that cause lasting wounds. I like to tell my kids what Mark Twain says. Think twice before you speak once, because you often speak twice the better for it. Don't speak in anger. That causes wounds that leave scars that never heal. Let this be why. Whatever authority you have, you always seek to exert it as a servant, serving your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one true king, the king of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the one who serves you. Because here's reality. We're all going to have times when we're in charge, when people are looking to us. And that's why you want to be sober-minded, clear-headed, and have your anger under control. And know that on your own you can't do this, but through Jesus Christ you can. Because Jesus calms anger, so you're not controlled by it. So you can be controlled by him, his spirit, his word. So follow Jesus and know that things won't go wrong, because Christ promises to always uphold you. What does he promise? to never leave you or forsake you, to always be with you right by your side. He holds you in his hands and nobody can snatch you out. That's the promise you have. Hold to those promises. Know that Jesus calms anger. Because anger, unwise demands, they bring anger. But Jesus calms things down. So follow him. Do this because you know. Jesus calms anger. So follow him. Derek's older now and he regrets how he let anger get the best of him. He knows he's never going to leave his prison cell. But you know what? He's no longer focused on people not respecting him, disrespecting him. But he's now focused on letting everyone he knows, whether they're guards or inmates, visitors and guests, how Jesus Christ saved him from his anger. He bears the consequences in his prison cell. But you know what? Like so many of you, he does not bear eternal consequences. You know why? Because Jesus Christ took it to the cross, paid his debt. To his death and resurrection, he's been set free. And he knows one day he'll leave his prison cell. And that's the hope you have to leave your anger behind. Because you understand that Jesus Christ dies and rises from the grave to appease God's wrath, to serve as a propitiation. His death and resurrection accomplishes that for you. So you can be reconciled to God and live for your Lord. Not in your power and strength, but through the power of the Spirit that indwells you and enables you. Don't try harder. Don't think you've got to find the right your plan, or depend on the right anger management class. You need help, get help, but always look and make sure it's grounded 
in Christ and his word, following his ways. Do this because you know you're going to face things that are going to make you angry, and there's going to be times when you're angry. And you need to have that under control. So Jesus calms anger so you can live as you should. So follow Jesus. Let him calm your soul. Do this knowing. Leave here knowing. Jesus calms anger, so follow him. Let's pray. Please join me. Lord God, we do come before you, thanking you and praising you that we have this text of Scripture that shows us and reminds us how anger is a thing that we face, Lord. It's prevalent in our lives and our society. So help us, Lord, to look to Christ, to see how Jesus calms anger. Lord, so when we face angry foes or even anger within, calm it, Lord. Help us to truly look to your word and your ways, to follow you, so we might be built up and edified, so we can go forth and bring not anger but peace, the peace that Jesus brings. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. I invite you to receive.